Every once in a while, we take a pause in, in the material that we present here because uh, the best form of communication, as far as I'm concerned, is, is one-on-one. When I can sit down one-on-one with someone and we just have a conversation. And the, the effectiveness of our communication, I think, drops with more people that we add. And the best kind of a communication, of course, is discussion, to be able to go back and forth and, and answer and ask questions and, and all that sort of thing. So, you know, kind of the... I suppose the least favorite thing I do is the monologue on Sunday mornings, and that is important, too. I had a pastor that I studied under who said that the pulpit was the last bastion of uninterrupted speech in America. (laughs) And he was very proud of that, you know, and don't mess with his uninterrupted speech. But uh, it's good to be interruptible, and we like to be interruptible. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do what we call conversations, is where we get a chance to, to ask questions and do different things. But even before I get into that, I just want to tell on myself a little bit. Uh, I got taken back to school last night. And uh, most of you have heard my Keith Urban story, you know, because it's no secret that, you know, since Chicago is my second city, um, I'm much more of a jazz person than a country person. Country music really wasn't my thing. Uh, and about three years ago, we got invited to a Keith Urban concert at the then Irvine Meadows. And the tickets were given to us. And so, you know, it's like we needed to go. And Marion was very excited, and I was being kind of drugged to this thing. But as the story goes, I ended up having a great time. Uh, to, to just allow myself to be present to the music live was just a whole different experience. I didn't buy any CDs afterward, but, you know, I really loved it while it was there. So about, I don't know, three months ago or so, John bought us tickets to Herman's Hermits, and, and the, the concert was last night. And, you know, I, I can't say that I'm a Herman Hermits fan. In fact, I don't think I ever gave Herman Hermits a second thought. You know, all my, my, my musical <laughs> career, it, was, it just wasn't a band that I connected with. I think I only knew one song, and that was Ennery, the eighth I am, I am. I knew that one, but that was the only one I knew. And so uh, Marion was a lot more excited about this, and John was just vibrating like an overtuned guitar string and with excitement about this. Of course, he's pretty much always doing that, isn't he? But anyways, um, by... An hour and 15 minutes in, I was screaming H-E-N-R-Y with all the rest of them and having just the best time. Now, you think I would have learned this by now, not to worry about how I anticipate things. But, you know, again, I had to be shown. And it's, it's an amazing thing that we know things intellectually. We understand them intellectually. But they don't sink in into a place where we can actually use them, where they, where they change the quality of our lives and our moments until repeatedly, over and over, we're shown. And then we fall back, and then we get reminded again. And so it was a beautiful thing, John. Thank you. And, and, and Peter Noon is just amazing. He's got to be 70, 69, 70 or something like that. And he was all over that stage with this 1,000-watt smile the whole time and funny. And we were just having the best time. You know, All of our moments can be those kinds of moments if we let them. If we don't prejudge them, you know, why did Jesus say, don't judge? You know, we think of that only in a, in a condemnatory way, that we're judging someone as sinful or, or whatever. But the truth of the matter is, he's talking about every single moment that we walk into, every conversation, every situation. If we bring in expectations, then we're already going to be comparing and contrasting, which takes us out of the moment. And we have all the space we need when our expectations and our experiences don't match up, to be perfectly miserable. I could have been perfectly miserable last night if I wanted to be, you know, but I allowed myself to come in. 
That's it. That's our choice all the time. And so what this really comes down to when you think about it, what it all comes down to is this connection, this complete presence in each moment that we define or we name as love. Because what really is love? It's not the feeling and it's not the behavior. Those can be manipulated. But the identification with the beloved, the identification, the oneness with the moment, the conversation, the situation, that's what Jesus is calling love. That's why the love of the enemy, the love of a moment, like country music, that, that you don't anticipate well but allow yourself to move into is the highest form of love. To love someone that you don't get, to love someone that, that initially repels you, initially you don't understand, whatever, to be able to allow yourself to move into that connection and identification. It's what this is all about. So as we ask these questions of the Bible or of our faith or of church or what of life or whatever it is that we're asking, there's always an undertone. There's always something that we're trying to get at. And it's really, am I safe? Am I included? Is there a place at the table for me? That's what we really want to know as human beings. And all the questions we ask about the Bible and all the questions we ask about specific doctrine or whatever it might be, and all the things that are difficult for us to swallow, the things that are hard sayings, that are dissonant to us, the reason they're dissonant is they are begging that same question or they are tearing at the fabric of the answer that we think we have and want to have, which is, yes, we are included. Yes, we do have a seat at the table. But then there's something that seems to fly in the face of that, and it's like, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? I need to ask this question. So this morning, we're just going to ask questions and we're going to talk about them. And this isn't really Bible answer man in the sense that there's a right or wrong answer to a specific question, but it's more talking about it so that we have a direction that will always take us in to the place of this absolute perfect love that Jesus was talking about, that he demonstrated and said that he was mirroring from his father. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to move everything. I'll give you an example because Frank's not here. He told me when he he realized he wasn't going to make it or maybe he'll make it in a little while. But he had a question. And and so this will serve as uh, priming the pump and and maybe also um, showing you how this thing works. And his question was, there is a story in the Bible about Jesus in Matthew 15, if you want to look it up later. Uh, there's a story in the Bible about Jesus teaching in Galilee. Now, if you look at a map, you've got Judea at the bottom, and you've got Galilee stacked on top of it to the north, right? And you've got in between is Samaria, and then off to the coast is what is now Lebanon, but was the, the region of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus is in Galilee. The Pharisees come up from Jerusalem, from Judea, to pick a fight, and they get one. And they have a pretty intense con- confrontation there, again, about Sabbath duties and whatnot. And then afterwards, everything is getting riled up. So Jesus heads for the hills. He heads for the coast, actually, and goes out to Tyre and Sidon just to get away from all the craziness. And he gets out of the district and actually crosses the border outside of the Galilee itself. And so he's in another area. He's in a Gentile area now. So this Canaanite area that he's in is not Jewish, per se. As he's walking through, there's a woman there who is just after him. She has a daughter that she says is demon-possessed. And uh, she's 
begging him to, to come and heal her daughter. And Jesus is just ignoring her, just flat out. Doesn't give her a single word, not the time of day. His disciples, his followers are begging him to send her away because she's not going anywhere. And she is continuing to pester them and to scream and to cry on, on the outside of, uh, outskirts of their, of their little group. And finally, Jesus turns to her and he says, you know, I'm, I'm here for the children of Israel. And, and, and she says, but, you know, but Lord, I need your help. He says, it's not good to give the food, the bread for the children to the dogs. Huh? Wow, that's pretty harsh. It's not good to give the, the bread of the children to the dogs. And then she says, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall off the master's table. And then at that point, he says, you have great faith. And he heals her daughter. So Frank's question was, what the heck is going on here? What about the, who is this Jesus? What is this thing? Well, he's calling her a dog for crying out loud. What's going on? What does this say about love, right? This love that Jesus was supposed to represent. And the deeper question, of course, is if he could do that to her, is he going to do that to me someday? Is he going to call me a dog and not give me the crumbs off the table? See, this is really where our questions always lie. Always understand, if we're talking about Scripture, whatever we're talking about, the only reason to even talk about it, the only reason to answer the question is to get at that deeper root. Because if we can't graduate from fear to living in love, then our lives are always going to be compromised. Our lives are always going to be lived in such a way that we will not experience the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. So there's a couple of things going on here. You know, it's, it's, it's possible Jesus was just having a really bad day. You know, he just got out of a scrape with the Pharisees, and he's kind of heading for the hills because he knows what's building here. But it's unlikely that just a bad day would have been recorded for 2,000 years. So there's probably something deeper going on here. Most of the commentators, if you read through the commentaries, will tell you that Jesus was doing this in order to test her faith. But isn't even that kind of manipulative? Isn't even that kind of cruel? I mean, here's a woman in obvious pain. She wants something for her daughter, and he's playing this game with her. In Matthew, the sermon, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, this would be Matthew, what, 7? Matthew 7. Um, Jesus makes this statement that you don't give uh, your wisdom to swine to the pigs, because they will trample it underfoot. And he says, you don't give what is holy to the dogs, because they will turn and tear you to pieces. Now, even that statement as well sounds really harsh to us. It sounds very condescending. But there's a code here. There's, there's an understanding to the language that we need to break into a little bit. Because when he says, don't give your wisdom to the swine, the swine represented something unclean. So working within his culture, the Jews who were standing outside of the law we're not the ones who are going to be able to understand the wisdom of the law. And so what he's saying basically is meet people where they are. Don't give them what you think that they should have if they're not prepared to be able to receive it. It, it seems pretty simple, right? We imagine that everybody needs what we have because we have it. And because we've had a certain experience, they're going to have the same experience as well. And so we end up with a one-size-fits-all kind of spirituality. And it ends up being abusive and manipulative if we just try to import it to them. And the dogs were the catch-all phrase that Jews used for anyone who was a Gentile, anyone who was outside of Judaism. 
And if you try to give what is holy, and that was code for the actual Torah law. It was, the, the, the law was understood as the ring, the binding. Um, and so if you give what is holy to the dogs, those who stand outside of Judaism, they're probably going to turn and attack you. Again, meet them where they are. They're not ready for this yet. So this is sort of what's happening here, I believe. More than Jesus trying, just trying to test your faith, he's trying to find out where she is. He is, now, this, this begs the other question, did Jesus know everything? And you're going to have to wrestle with that one on yourself. But it seems to me that Jesus operates the way we operate, and the Bible tells us that he was like us in every way, except that he was in perfect connection. He did not sin. So he goes into this, this, uh, this Canaanite encampment, this Canaanite district, and he has this woman coming to him. He's trying to find out where is she at. And so he's using the same criteria that he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, you know what? You don't give someone something that they're not ready for, but let's find out if she's ready. And, and so he is testing her faith, more like finding out a little bit more about her. Who is she? What is her perseverance? What is the level of her faith? Does she have the faith to be a partner in this healing? Because remember, Jesus never just heals. He always says, your faith has made you whole. Right? He doesn't say your sins are forgiven. He says, you know, he doesn't say, I forgive your sins. Your sins are forgiven. And so there's a partnership that's implied in that. Is she at the point where she can partner with him in this healing of her daughter? And he finds out that she is using the same words that the Jews would understand, that non-Jews would understand as well. And then the second part of the question that, that Frank asked was, why is he only there for the Jews anyway? Why wasn't he there for everybody? You know? And I think this is a really important point for us as well. Jesus wasn't trying to start a new religion. Jesus was trying to purify the one he was in already. See, we think we need to go far in a field and do all these great things for God. But really, if we take Jesus' model, we will just try to make good relationships right where we sit. We will try to purify and make holy the systems and the the groups that we're in. Not trying to go out someplace else and create something out there. Jesus worked from the inside out. He was working from within Judaism. That was his mandate, and that's where he stayed. Except when these people came to him. And whenever they did, he was completely open to them. Even if they were Romans, who were the great oppressors. They were the ones that everybody hated. Or whether they were tax gatherers, or whether they were prostitutes, or whether they stood wildly outside the law or wildly outside of Judaism, it didn't matter to Jesus. But that wasn't his mandate. His mandate was from the inside out. But he was always present to whatever happened. Is that a model that we can grab onto? I mean, we have a a policy here at The Effect. We never give unsolicited advice. We never give unsolicited counsel. That's not our job. You know? We can't presume to speak into your life before we've been invited. Unless we see abuse happening against someone else, then we need to step in and protect the victim. But I think that's what Jesus is doing here as well. He was invited into Judaism. He was born into Judaism. But he didn't presume unless someone came to him. That's the way I read it. Now, you can debate this 
until next Tuesday, and, and it'll never be solved. And there would be people who would be vehemently you know, against what I'm, I'm trying to, my interpretation. My interpretation is based on, and always will be based on, that I've stuck my stake in the ground at the point of the Father's love. I believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He loves with the kind of abandon that is absolute. And it's indiscriminate. He loves everyone equally because that's the way his father loves and he's mirroring that. And so if I come on a scripture like this that seems to fly in the face of that, I don't automatically assume that there's something wrong with my stake. My stake stays in the ground at that place. It must be that I have misunderstood something else, that something else is missing from the equation. Because when I finally get around to it, it's going to reinforce that Jesus and the Father are one and are made of this kind of love. And so that's consistent for me. And if I'm going to err to any side, it's always going to be right there. I'm going to maintain that notion of love no matter what. And we can debate and we can agree to disagree on the other things. That's my interpretation. You all need to come up with your own interpretation. You need to become convinced of what you're convinced of. But that doesn't mean that we can't have fun talking about it. I mean, that's what the Jews did. You know, there's that old line, if you've got two Jews in the room, you've got three opinions. It's just like that. <laughs> All right. So d- we've been talking for the last two months, I think, about uh, mystics and about the contemplative way, both here on Sundays and also on Wednesdays as we've been going through the mystics. And those of you who missed um, Frank as Francis of Assisi, Assisi, you really missed something. So uh, maybe we'll uh, talk him into doing that on a Sunday morning. Because he was all dressed up and everything. It was, it was quite fun. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But at any rate, since we've been talking about the mystics, this is some really difficult stuff to try to wrap your head around. You know, to wrap your head around the, the, this contemplative way of life. Were there any questions about that? Are there any just general questions that you want to ask? Or am I going to be talking to myself up here for the next few minutes? Anything that's been rolling around in your head as we've been talking? Um, maybe I'll do the Phil Donahue thing and run up if, if you have a question or just repeat the question for the sake of the recording. But, um, Jim, go Jim. This isn't really a question, but the, the, uh, the story that you told, um, Brennan Manning used that line about the crumbs falling from the table, um, in his last book. All grace, all is grace. And he was using it in reference to, um, I think, really his own life. And it had, he used it within the context of someone in recovery who has a slip. So, because he himself oftentimes went in and out of recovery. And, uh, and he used that reference of. What he said, I believe, was crumbs of grace will always fall from the No one is, is undeserving of forgiveness or grace. See, and, and that's beautiful, too. You know, the, the crumbs of grace are falling. There are a lot of different ways that this can be interpreted. There's a lot of different ways that you can look at this. And it, it can be looked at a lot less technically than you know my long answer, and there's a very simple one. You know? For me, if it's consistent with this notion of the Father's love, then there's a good chance that we're on the right track. 
But there's always nuances and there always are more layers to uncover as we go through as well that can really deepen and make much more rich uh, the passages that we look at. But that's, that's perfect. Of course, Brendan Manning is one of my heroes anyway, so that's, that's perfect. Yeah. Nothing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just the Jim is making me think of something else, too, because I don't know how many of you know Ron Israel, but um, with this particular Bible story, he, he and I worked right next to each other for many years, and we would talk a lot. And he said, when I find that I'm willing to eat the crumbs that fall to the floor, most of the time I'm then invited to come and sit at the table. I like that, too. And that sort of fits in, you know. Jesus was singing. Is, the, is there a humility there? Is there a willingness there, you know, to, to just start wherever she needed to start? So that's perfect as well. Yeah. Marianne? With um, all of the things that are going on in the world right now, there is a lot of evil being uncovered. And I don't mean just bad stuff. I mean, like, real evil. Um, do you feel that we are in the end times right now? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> and neither does anyone else. And that's the most important thing we can say about that. You cannot predict the date. People have been trying since God made dirt, and there is no, it keeps on going. Jesus said specifically, you're not going to know the time. You're not going to know the hour. You are going to know seasons, he said. So, you know, we can see we're in a season, but a season of what exactly? People have been predicting the end of the world every single year since the crucifixion. And especially at certain times, it goes into a fever pitch, right? So at the, at the first millennium, it went into a fever pitch. People in Europe went crazy thinking it was going to be the end of the world because we were approaching a significant date. Same thing had happened in year 2000. You all remember Y2K and all of that? We all thought we were all watching to see what was going to happen. When, when Hitler was on his rampage, people were seeing in the headlines what was going on and seeing him as the Antichrist and seeing end times and seeing that as well. And now, with a lot of different signs and a lot of with Israel back gathered into, uh, into uh, the Palestinian area there, into Israel, there's a lot of supposition that we are entering the end times. And yes, the thing that is different, I guess, about our era that was never present before, even though these things are cyclical, is the level of our technology, at least in terms of recorded history. There's never been a time like this. And so everything has gone global. So things that used to be regional and regional conflicts and regional problems are now become global. And so if someone sneezes in Europe, you know, we catch a cold in China, and that's the way that works. And so it's everything, the ante is upped. And so we can read the tea leaves. You know, you don't have to be a prophet to do that. You can see that if you draw lines where everything is going, it's, it's not going anywhere good. And it's quite possible that we're going to end up hitting another human bottleneck the way that has happened in the past. When, when the Roman Empire collapsed, um, Europe, 
uh, Western Europe was thrown into a dark ages. It's quite possible that that can happen again if Western civilization collapses and we can be thrown into a dark age. It wouldn't take much. I mean, look what the collapse of the Twin Towers did to our economy and did to world trade and so on and so forth. It wouldn't take much to throw us into something like that. And then usually in a cataclysm like that, there's large losses of life, and then there's a bottleneck in population, and then it re-expands again on the other side. Is this the signs of the actual end-time sequence or not? You know, the thing to remember about end-time sequence is, is that it's very young in terms of its uh, configuration, in terms of the interpretation of the apocalyptic books and the prophetic books. It's only about 150 years old. Now, our understanding of, of what the end times scenario is is only about 150 years old. It was not the interpretation of the church for, you know, 1,700 years or so. And so have we got it right? You have to be a dispensationalist in order to be able to read the scriptures the way that, that they are being read. Is dispensationalism right? It's just there's so many unanswered questions we really don't know. But what I can tell you is absolutely this is that if your interpretation of the apocalyptic and prophetic books causes you to live in fear of the future, causes you to start digging bunkers and storing up food and to suspect in, a, in an erotic and paranoid way everything around you and, and reading the headlines for the next sign, then we're doing it wrong. Because nothing in the Bible should cause us to live in fear. That's not what the book is about. When you really read the book, it's about living abundantly, as Jesus said. It's about living with abandon. It's about being able to open up and become vulnerable and transparent. To love in a way that you know you're going to get hurt. And when you do, you love that way again. So if your reading of the Bible causes you to move into a defensive crouch, if it causes you to move into a place of fear, then there's something wrong. And that's about the most definitive that I can tell you, we could get into a lot more of it because the imagery that Jesus uses and the imagery that the prophets use is often so tied to the Jewish wedding tradition. There are many clues there, and I've done messages on this before, many clues there about the way that this scenario is supposed to unfold and inform us in terms of how to live. We are in this between time between the betrothal and the consummation of the wedding. We are understood as the bride of Christ. Jews were understood as the bride of Yahweh in the same way. And so we are living like that breathless bride in that period waiting for the groom to return. How does she live in that space? With a breathless expectancy, but at the same time, an absolutely riveted attention on her family and friends and everyone that is with her right now. Because when the groom comes... She'll be taken away. And it may be that she never returns. It may be that she never sees her family again or she only sees sporadically. And so with an intense sense of nowness and hereness and, and cherishing, at the same time, there is also that sense of expectancy. To live in that kind of you know, balance, that's what Scripture, and I believe the apocalyptic and prophetic literature is supposed to do for us to create that kind of balance, not to fear the headlines. But as far as a date or a time, no idea. And everyone who's predicted it has ended up with egg on their face. And then when they do, what do they do? They just wait a few months and then they make another prediction. And everybody listens again. I don't know why they do that. 
Why do we do that? Why do we keep listening every time there's a new prediction? But we do. I know. I think it's just human nature. Around those, around the events of the end times, there's a group of people referred to as 144,000. Can you elaborate on who they are and what that's all about? The 144,000 were supposed to be the faithful Jewish remnant, and that was one of the um, one of the uh, what would you call it? I suppose one of the triggers. You know, until you hit that number, you know, that number needed to be hit, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses grabbed onto. And they said when they reached, they, they saw themselves as fulfilling that prophecy. So when they reached 144,000, then the end time sequence was going to happen. And they reached 144,000 and they all ducked for cover. And then they had to revise the number and revise the number and revise the number. Um, the, net, the interesting thing about 144,000, though, it's the same thing as you, if you look and read Revelation and you read the, the, the account of the New Jerusalem coming down. Everything about the measurements in the New Jerusalem is a factor of 12. 12 is a very significant number in Jewish thought. 12 is the, is the product of 4 times 3. 3 is a number of perfection. 4 is a number of the earth. And so when you take 4 times 3, what you get in 12 is the perfection of the earth or the perfection of earthly systems. And so where you see the number 12, it's a perfection of government. It's a perfection of earthly authority. It's a perfection of, of you know, just uh, communities and so on and so forth. So you see 12 disciples. Right? It's the 12 apostles. You see the 12 tribes, 12 appearing over and over and over again. When Jerusalem comes down, it's all a factor of 12. You know, there are 12 gates, there are 12 porticos, there are 12 angels. And the measurements along the side are 144,000 stadia, which is 12 times, what, 1,200? I don't know. It's another factor of 12. Right? And so the same thing here with 144,000. What it's talking about symbolically, and that's an important thing to understand about apocalyptic literature, it's coded literature. And so they're using numbers to get ideas across because the prophetic book comes before the national cataclysm. It's the prophet saying, you're heading off a cliff, and if you don't change directions, here's what's going to happen to you. Kind of like we can say, hey, look, look at our society right now. Look at Western civilization. Look where it's headed. It's headed off a cliff. If we don't change directions in some way, then we're going down. All right, That's what the prophet's job is, to try to get repentance happening, which is a change of direction. The apocalyptic book comes after the cataclysm has taken place. Now you're standing in a smoking crater that used to be your city, your home, your people. And the apocalyptic book, usually being written and disseminated in the presence of an occupying force, right, is designed to give the people the hope and the ability to persevere that even though you have been devastated, even though you can't believe that this has happened, in some way God's promises are going to be made manifest. God's promises are still true. If he has to directly involve himself in human history to make this promise happen, he will do it. And that is the message of the apocalypticist. Alright? So, the language is highly figurative. The language is coded so that it goes through without alerting the authorities and creating any kind of a backlash from them. But that idea of the 140,000 is the completion of the, of the people of, of, of Israel. That remnant is going to be completed in some perfected way as we move forward. 
and it's not necessary that we've understood that this end is going to come sometime in the future because the other thing about Jewish prophecy is it was meant for and had to be completed for the generation to whom it was given. And if the prophet's prediction did not come true within that generation, then he or she was declared a false prophet. And so we can have to say that any true prophecy in the Bible has already been completed in that time, in that generation. Even Jesus' um, predictions were made true in the first Jewish-Roman war in 70 A.D. Now, Christians look at these scriptures and say, yes, they were already completed for that time, for that people, but they also have an end-time value as well. They are predictive in two ways. And so that's the way that the Christians have read. Are we right? I don't know. You know, there's a lot of Christians who are called preterists who believe, no, the scriptures were already fulfilled in that time and there's no future value. And then, of course, there's many who disagree. So that's going to be something that we're going to have to leave on the table. But I would say that 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 number is a symbolic number of the completion of the Jewish people at some point in this process. And uh, maybe we can say that's already been fulfilled with the Jews back in their land and, you know, moving toward, you know, greater sovereignty all the time in their area, in their region. Yeah. I have a question. You're talking about the, the Jewish concept of hell at the time when, when Jesus was alive. He was asking about the Jewish concept of hell at the time that Jesus was alive. Um, are we recording this? I'm going to be in so much trouble. No, we don't, we don't shy away from the hard question. It's not a hard question at all. The truth of the matter is that there is no word in the Old or New Testament that means what we mean when we say the word hell. A place of eternal torment where um, souls are, are placed and, and held forever, that concept doesn't uh, exist in, in uh, Jewish thought. And so in the Old Testament, we have, we have about five words that have been translated as hell. Sheol is one of them. Sheol in the Old Testament, usually, especially in the first five books, is just an un- indistinguished, undistinguished place of the afterlife where everybody goes. The wicked, the good, everybody goes to this place. And it's, it's very undefined in terms of what kind of relationships are there. In fact, it seems to imply that there aren't real relationships with the living or relationships with each other. The truth of the matter is, and we'll be actually talking about this in the, in the story of the Bible, there's an evolution of Jewish thought. From the earliest books, and especially the first five books, we see this place of Sheol, which is kind of like um, the Greek idea of Hades, where everybody goes, all the shades go, all the spirits go, the, the souls go, and they're all together. And then as you move forward, especially into the later books like Daniel and Ezekiel, and especially post-exilic books, the ones that, um, that were written after the Jews came back from their Babylonian captivity, we see a, a full uh, description of the afterlife with angelology and demonology, resurrection of the body, and so on and so forth. And so by Jesus' time going forward, that's part of Jewish culture that all this is happening, except for the Sadducees who only except in the first five books, and so they were still in that Sheol place. But the Pharisees were not. So at Jesus' time, the, the word that is most often used, I mean, yes, there was the outer darkness that Jesus uses. There was Tartaru, um, which only appears once in, in some of the letters of Peter, I believe. 
Um, but Gehenna is the one that is most typically used by Jesus most of the time. And it's the one that most co- closely corresponds with our idea of hell. Gehenna was named after the Valley of Hinnom, which was the area that was the garbage dump for um, the city of Jerusalem. And so it was a ravine that ran along the backside of, of uh, the mound, uh, the, the walls of the city gates. And all the refuse was dumped there, organic waste and other waste. And they would burn it consistently. Constantly there were fires burning because you had to burn this stuff to purify it. And the fires were purifying the organic waste so that the sickness and everything didn't ensue. But for a Jew, there was no place that they could imagine that was more unclean. It was full of all of the sickness, uh, uh, full of all of this this refuse. There were dogs that would go through and, and cull, of course. The, smoke, the fires were burning. The smoke was there. It was a disgusting, horrible place. And so it was, in their cultural mind, the worst place you could possibly be. On the other hand, the whole point of it was purification. If the fires didn't burn, if you didn't get this away from the city, then the pestilence would take over your, your community. So the idea was was that Gehenna was like this valley in the sense that you would go to it if you were not perfected in this life, if you hadn't reached a certain uh, righteousness, if you hadn't feared God, then you would go there and the fires would burn and the worm dieth not and you have all of that imagery. But the idea was purification, not punishment. The idea was that the fires burned to purify. Salt was understood as a purifier as well. And so the idea of Jewish Gehenna was much more like Catholic purgatory than it was like our idea of hell. In fact, the, uh, the local tradition was, and the Jewish tradition was, that there was a maximum 12-month stay in, in Gehenna. That's the longest you could stay. So their Kaddish, their prayer of the dead, if you said it for your parents... You said it for a maximum of 11 months. For 11 months, you would say this prayer formally and daily. Why 11 months? Because if you said it for the full full 12 months, you were saying that your parents were as bad as they could possibly be. And so you subtracted one month, and you said it for that period of time. You know. <laughs> and notice the number 12 showing up again, okay? That's the number of the complete cycle. It's like the, 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 the travel through the seasons, the travel through the 12 months, the travel through the, the 12 constellations of the zodiac, of which the ancient peoples were very aware as the completion of their cycle. And so this was, this, this was the symbolic of a complete cycle of purification. And then the person was able to then move into the Ganeidain, which could be translated Garden of Eden, or as Paul calls it, the third heaven that he ascends to. And so there really isn't an analog of, of our idea of hell. Our idea of hell really dates back to Dante and, and the Divine Comedy and his description of hell for us culturally in the West is, is much more on point than anything that we would get from the Bible. Does that mean there is no hell? We're not saying that. We're not saying that at all. This is something for us. But what, what does have to, we have to take into consideration is that if Jesus is using a word that he knows means something in his culture and he doesn't take the time to redefine it, 
Because you could say his whole ministry was about redefining kingdom because he knew that they had the wrong concept from his point of view. He's constantly trying to define kingdom. He doesn't try to redefine Gehenna. He doesn't try to redefine salvation. He doesn't try to redefine forgiveness or good and evil. He uses those words just as they are, which means whatever image it's painting in the minds of his listeners must be okay with him. Or else we just didn't have those things transmitted into our scripture. That doesn't seem right if it's a divinely inspired document. So it does change the way that we look at things if we're going to take Jesus at his word. But that doesn't mean that people don't have the free will to refuse the forgiveness that is freely offered. Or to refuse the invitation to have a seat at the table. There's a, there's a nuance there. But what it does suggest to us is that God doesn't put someone in a place that is irretrievable. God never gives up on anyone. Now we're back to the stake in the ground at the point of the Father's love. A book was written a few years ago called Love Wins, and it was kind of a a treatise on universal reconciliation, that everybody is going to be reconciled to God. And my take on that is I don't know if love always wins because we have free will. But I do know, and what I firmly am convinced of, is that love never gives up. There would never be a time that God would give up on us. But we may just not have what it takes to actually come to him. And that's a different proposition. Does that uh, help? Okay. Judy? Sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, Catholic tradition has always included both the notion of hell and the notion of purgatory. And so they have kind of covered both bases there. Um, The idea of reincarnation, it's it's an elegant theory. It's a way of getting around. I mean, why does it even exist? Because it's so hard for us as we look around at life to see, you know, where is the equity here? You know, uh, how, uh, where, where is the, the balance? How do we get well? We see so many people dying in such miserable states. You know, is that all there is? I mean, what's the, what's the point of life then? How is someone supposed to get to a place of enlightenment, of connection, of health, you know, if, if they die so young? And so reincarnation answers the question in, in a particular way. You know, the idea of a purgatory or a Gehenna understood this way can be an answer to that question as well. Obviously, hell is another answer to that question. There's a snapshot at the point you die, and that's it, all she wrote. You know, so these are all attempts to answer a question that is inherently unanswerable. We're never going to know. We can't possibly know in this life. There aren't answers with that kind of specificity. But 
the, the scriptures leave open certain possibilities. And the reincarnation is not specifically talked about in, in, the, in the Bible. It's not specifically um, ruled out in the Bible. There is a line in Paul that says it's appointed man once to die and then the resurrection. That's been used you know, um, to, to rule out uh, res- uh, reincarnation. Um, but do we have that right? It, it's kind of hard to know. Um, the Jews had no set doctrine about the afterlife because they considered that God's domain. The Jews are really good at living in paradox and living in a state of unknowing much better than we are. Most Eastern peoples are. And so they were perfectly comfortable with saying, the afterlife is God's domain. We know nothing about it. We have all the information we need to live right here and right now. And if we do our job here, then God will do his job there. And we trust that he's all merciful and and just and everything is going to work out fine. And so they were able to do that. And so basically you could believe whatever you wanted to about the afterlife. And Jews do to this day. Some of them believe in reincarnation. Some of them believe in the resurrection of the body the way you know, Christian theology is. Some of them believe that the, the wicked just annihilate and just wink out of existence at death. And, and then there's this idea that everybody is together and heaven is a state of mind, not, not an actual place as well as hell. Your arms don't bend at the elbows is one folktale. So if you're in hell, you're starving to death because you can't feed yourself. And if you're in heaven, you've learned to feed each other. And so it's kind of like that, right? And so can we, can we take a cue from that and ease up a little bit on what we conceive about the next life? The problem I have, the only problem I have with reincarnation is in, in the adherence that, I, adherence that I've talked to. It tends to devalue this life because there's so many more that you can have. And there tends to be a forward thinking sometimes rather than a now thinking, at least as it's practiced here in the West. You know, in the East, it can be a totally different uh, concept, a totally different way of life. But anything, as far as I'm concerned, that takes our focus off this moment, off this life right now, which is the only life we know that we have, and the only moment that exists is, dis- is a distraction. And so I don't personally need it. You know, I, I don't really think about it. Um, but I don't get all excited and bothered if someone else does. You know, it, it's it, we all need to move through what we are convinced of, uh, move through different ideas and concepts as we get to what we're convinced of. And I really applaud you for for walking down this path with your daughter and finding that common ground with her as you go, because that's really what she's looking for. She's looking for your validation as a parent, your willingness to investigate what has become important to her. And um, who knows that she's just going through a cycle here. And when she gets to her 12-ness, it could be something completely different than where she is right now. You know, <laughs> Where are we at with time? 11.37. Oh, my gosh. We, we went long. Okay. So we, we probably need to wrap it up. Was this helpful? Was this something that... You know, because uh, we can we can probably do this at intervals. I think it's really important for us to be able to feel like we can talk back. What I would like to encourage you, though, is when I am doing my monologue or, or Frank's doing his monologue, there are obviously questions that are going to come up. There are things that aren't going to be clear. As much as we try to make what we're saying clear, it isn't going to be. And it's certainly not going to be clear to everybody. Ask questions. Either come up afterwards and ask the question, you know, we are totally exposed here. Our phone numbers are everywhere. They're on the back of your inserts. They're out. The business cards are out there. Call me. Call Frank. Email. Text. 
let's have a discussion. Let's go through this. If you're really interested, show up on Wednesday night and dig in deeper. But the questions that are left unanswered are going to be what keeps you at arm's length from the full engagement of your journey. And, and that's what we're after here. It's the full engagement of our journey. And the full apprehension, the full embrace of this love that we believe is the center of everything. So don't let anything get in the way of you absolutely engaging in your journey. What? All right. Then I think I've talked enough up here. Let's all stand. <laughs>